God says you take Achan, you take his wife, you take all their children, and you take them outside the city and you stone them until they're dead. The entire family was wiped out because of one man's sin. An entire nation, how many men lost their lives fighting, fighting AI because of one man's sin? Church, listen, that is an example to us that we need to remember of it just takes one person's open, unrepented sin to affect Emmanuel Baptist Church and to affect your family individually. This is the Divine Truth Podcast, a ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. This podcast is for the purpose of teaching God's people through the verse-by-verse exposition live from the pulpit of Emmanuel Baptist Church. We pray that the Word of God richly blesses you as you hear it proclaimed. Let's turn to the epistle to the Corinthians once again, chapter 5. And because we're going to read the whole chapter together, it's 13 verses, but it's long enough where I'm not going to have you stand as I read it. Uh, I know Ms. Zagner probably couldn't tolerate that, that length of time, so uh, we're just going to stay seated as I, as I read the text and uh, to see where we're going to go for the next uh, few weeks. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse number 1. The Apostle Paul says, it is, re- it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent the body, but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present, concerning him that hath done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together and my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan... For the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company, If any man that is a so-called brother be a fornicator or covetous or idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, with such a one know not eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask you tonight that you would teach us your truth, help us to understand uh, this very important subject. We praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. 
in this passage is pretty, it's a pretty pointed passage. The Apostle Paul is pretty clear on what the church's responsibility is for dealing with public sin within its membership. And tonight I want to preach to you, begin to preach to you a, a series on dealing with sin in the church. Because unfortunately, when you're dealing with people, you're dealing with the potentiality of public sin that has to be dealt with. And Paul is very clear on how the church is to deal with repetitive, unrepentant, open sin within the body of Christ. The passage that we're going to be looking at starting this evening is one of great importance. And this passage, among other passages that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks, is looking at the subject of purity in the church. The purpose of God saving his church, the purpose of God bringing redemption upon his church, is that the church may be pure, may be a pure body. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, and verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it, speaking about the whole context there in that portion of chapter 5 is regarding the church as the, as the relationship of a husband and wife is also a relationship between Christ and his church. And Paul says in verse 26 that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2, Paul says, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste or as a pure virgin to Christ. Much of the church today, I'm talking about the church, not here, but I'm talking about collectively. Much of the church today is like the church in Corinth. People are strongly intent on having and doing their own thing, having their own way. And in no regard does it seem that society longs to have its own way than it does than in regards to sexual activity. Corinth was much like today. Sexual permissiveness and sexual perversion, even within the ranks of the church, was rampant. They all were saved out of a very sexually perverse Religion, whereas the goddesses that they used, would worship there in Corinth before coming to Christ would, would, would be involved in all type of sexual orgies and things like that involved as part of their worship. And as you study the, the history of false religions in the world throughout the centuries, what you'll find is much of false worship is surrounded around sexual activity. Because they believed sexual activity and drunkenness. Because they believed as you in these false religions, they believed, and Corinth was no different. They believed as you reached drunkenness and as you reached sexual euphoria, you gained access to the deities that you had no other way. And so they were real big on the perverseness and the pervasiveness and the permissiveness of sexual activity. And it's much like our world today. And unfortunately, the church is not unaffected by that. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it deals with sexual immorality in the church. And we need to understand from the very beginning that this is a ser that, uh, how serious this sin is. 
The tolerance and the arrogance that the church displayed was even more sad and unbelievable. This chapter is not directed to the believers, as in verse 11 says, it's directed to the so-called believers. But it is directed at the rest of the church who stood by and did nothing. Because Paul just has one thing to say about the so-called believer that engaged in this sexual promiscuity. He had one thing to say about that person who committed these sins and would not repent. And what was that? Verse 13. Remove that wicked person from among yourselves. Paul had one thing to say about the sinning person who was unrepentant. Get him out of the church. Get him out of the church. Deliver his soul, deliver his flesh rather, to Satan. And get him out from among your membership and among your ranks. Now folks, to some of us, that sounds harsh. Unfortunately, I can remember in seminary, in Bible college, when we were studying the epistles of Paul... And we would come across this passage, invariably, there was always somebody in the class that would always raise their hand and say, well, that's not very loving. That's not very tolerant. But Paul's whole argument is that discipline is the loving thing and tolerance is the sinful thing. Because the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be so pure that we are not to tolerate sin within our ranks. And Paul was shocked not only by the fact of the sin, but Paul was shocked by the fact that no one within the church at Corinth was doing anything about it. They were allowing this young man to continue in his sinful lifestyle, but yet continue to remain an active part of the church. No doubt participating in the Lord's Supper, as he will speak about in chapter 11. No doubt participating in those things. And so Paul's directive here is not to the so-called believers, but his directive here is to the people within the church that's doing nothing about the sin. They're just standing by and allowing the sin to remain. And this is foolish on many levels. But one such level is this, is that because, as we said this morning, this church is a body. And the sins that affect one person affects the entire body. You, the church, this church, Emmanuel Baptist Church, cannot allow open, unrepented sin to remain in its ranks. And we think for one moment that the rest of us are not affected. That's contrary to what Paul says is the operations of the body. Because we, and we all work together. In fact, he says we rejoice together, we mourn together. And we cannot have a body that, that tolerates Open, unrepented sin. And we're talking about open, unrepented sin. Church cannot stand by and allow open, unrepented sin to remain in its ranks and think for one moment they're not going to be affected. It is truly sad, sad, and it can truly be said that we are living in a society that is propagated with sex. Everywhere you go, you can't even go on Facebook without some type of meme being posted that's sexual in content, sexual 
in nature. Because it's everywhere. Everywhere you turn, whether it's on the television, the advertisements, on the billboard, it is sexual in nature. And our society has developed what I like to call, and I don't mean to offend anyone, but what I like to call a barnyard mentality when it comes to sex. That means as many partners as possible. And that's what I call a barnyard mentality. In fact, our society does things sexually that even animals would not do. In fact, in our society, we have de de developed a tolerance and a praise for homosexuality, now to the point that you are treated with intolerance if you dare to give a biblical perspective on that lifestyle. But it is also, not only in the homosexual world, but it is also in the heterosexual world. But it is still, it is still the barnyard mentality. The more partners, the better. And everywhere you turn, this is what you see. And quite honestly, church, one of the things that one of the things that used to protect the church was the shock of sin. When many of you were in your teen years, the outcast of the public high school was the girl that got herself pregnant. The outcast of the public high schools was the girl that was active in ways she should not have been. Now, it is not only tolerated, it is accepted, it is celebrated, and it is helped. When you have contraceptives being handed out to fifth graders in some public schools in our country, this, is, this lifestyle is not only tolerated and accepted, but it is aided. And one of the things that protected the church was the church shock of that lifestyle. But folks, listen, in some places, even that is gone in the church. When the church hears about persistent sin, sexual sin by this context, sometimes it is met with ways to sweep it under the rug. But Paul lays out in this chapter... How the church is supposed to handle sexual sin in particular in this context. And again, one of the things that you need to remember is that every sin that is perpetrated upon your life as a lifestyle is perpetrated upon this church. And it's perpetrated, therefore, by effects to each of your individual families. And so when we, when we begin to be tempted to say that disciplining people out of the church for open, unrepented sin is unloving, you need to consider how their open, unrepented sin affects your church and affects your family. Then it may not seem quite so unloving. It may not seem quite so intolerant. Joshua 7 is a perfect illustration of that, isn't it? Joshua 7 isn't sexual sin, but Joshua 7 is an illustration of how one man's sin affect, affects the entire family. You remember Joshua was going up against Cana, and they defeated Canaan resoundedly. God gave them the prescriptives of how they were going to do that, and they went in, they followed God's law to the T, and they defeated their enemy in Canaan. 
And God gave them of many commands. God gave them this crystal clear, unambiguous command. Do not take of any of the spoils of Canaan. Right? So they go and they defeat Canaan. They go back to camp to celebrate their victory. And then they go to this little city named Ai. And Ai, by comparison, was a very small city. Very easy to beat. In fact, Joshua did not even take all the troops to fight this battle because it would have been so simple to defeat them. We just defeated Canaan. This was much larger, greater military strength. We can certainly go and defeat this smaller, weaker nation. And so Joshua leads his company of troops onto Ai, and you know the story. They get whooped up on. Bad. And they head back to camp, licking their wounds. Joshua goes before the Lord and said, Lord, what in the world is going on here? You promised us the victory. We defeated Canaan, and then we go to Ai. You promised us the victory, and we get ourselves beat up on. What's the deal? And God's words to Joshua were this. Joshua, get up. There's sin in the camp. Well, in the process of casting lots, which is how they decided many things back in those days, it was found out that a man by the name of Achan took of the forbidden thing. When he went into Canaan, he stole from Canaan some of their spoils, some of their clothing, and some of their vast wealth that was in their city. If you need a way to remember his name, this is how I remembered his name in seminary, he was aching to steal something. That may help you. Always helped me. And so they went into Achan's tent. And there Achan, right in the middle of his tent, he had buried all of the spoil that he had stolen from Canaan. And God says, Joshua, there's the sin. What happened? Achan and his entire family, his wife and his children, who were, by the way, complicit in his sin, in his transgression. But you say, well, how do you know, Pastor? Because listen, you can't bury treasure in the middle of your tent and your family not know about it. So his wife and his children were all complicit in this sin. And so God says, you take Achan, you take his wife, you take all their children, and you take them outside the city and you stone them until they're dead. The entire family was wiped out because of one man's sin. An entire nation, how many men lost their lives fighting, fighting AI because of one man's sin? Church, listen, that is an example to us that we need to remember of it just takes one person's open, unrepented sin to affect Emmanuel Baptist Church and to affect your family individually. No one's sin stays within the bounds of their own home. We are a body. We are a family. We are one unit as Christ as our head. And that being the case, anything that you do, anything that I do, affects the entire body. But let's notice what Paul's words are to this carnal, arrogant body of believers here and how we need to deal with one that is committing such sins. And we want to open this up in, I think, five or six points, and we're not going to get to all of them this evening, of course, but we want, to, we want to go through this passage. Number one, we want to look at the reported sin. Number one, the reported sin. And as, 
as we begin to look at how the scripture says that we are to deal with sin in the church, the first thing that needs to be understood is the need for discipline. Look at verse 1 again, where Paul says, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. The Corinthian believers had a place in their lives where they began to really marginalize sin. They, they did not treat sin with the seriousness they, they, that they should have. The word common is a Greek word olos, and it, and it gives us the extent of the spread of sin. It means completely. It means wholly. It means everywhere. Now, Paul is not using words of exaggeration here to try to give to the people the shock and awe factor. You know, the old thing, well, everybody is saying this when only one person is saying it, but you say everybody is saying it just to give the shock and awe factor. My youth pastor used to go out every Halloween before he was saved and egg houses. And he walked out of the house one day with a, with a, uh, with a dozen full of eggs. His dad said, where are you going? He says, he says, well, everybody's going. He says, not everybody, you're not. So normally when, when somebody uses it, the exaggeration of everybody's doing it, it's for the shock and awe factor. That's not what Paul is doing here. But we sometimes do that. Well, sometimes we say things like, well, everybody believes this about you, when hardly anybody even knows you, much less believes that about you. But we do that for the shock and awe. Because we do that to, to sort of lend credibility to what, we're, to what we're trying to claim. But again, that's not what Paul is doing. But to what extent did the information spread? Simon Chrismacher in his commentary on 1 Corinthians said, it actually carries the concept of thoroughness rather than universality. In other words, he, this word uh, common carries the idea that the, that the sin was not known everywhere as in universally, but the sin was known in very great detail. And it signifies that the whole story had been reported. Because the adverb is at the beginning of the verse, uh, the word commonly is an adverb at the beginning of the verse, it modifies the verb of reported. It's reported thoroughly, Paul says. It's, rep it's reported commonly. Now Paul did not reveal who reported it, but just to say that this had been well reported. Now, in Paul's day, there was an estimated population in Corinth of about 700,000 people in Paul's day. And about two-thirds of that population were slaves. So I do not know that the fact is that, you know, 700,000 people knew about the sin in this little church here in the corner of Corinth, nor do I believe that's what Paul is trying to say. He is simply informing them that there is enough credible testimony to verify the truthfulness of the accusation. Now, from our past studies, church, what is the, what is the credible testimony criteria? Two or three witnesses, at least two or three eyewitnesses. I was there, I saw it. We're not talking about witnesses that say, well, I heard, well she said, he said, and she said, and now I know. You know, you got a lot of people that go around and say, well, I know this is the fact because he said, she said, they said, and therefore it's fact. 
And that's not the biblical criteria of a good eyewitness testimony. I was there. I saw it. Here's what happened. The Bible's criteria is two or three of those people that are able to say that. And Paul's first step is to show them that the immorality was, in fact, immorality. And it was serious. And it did not need to be tolerated. And really, folks, this was something that they should have already known. This was something they should have already known. This information was information that should have shocked them, as it did Paul. The church of Corinth had been ministered to by Paul. The Corinthian believers had been well grounded in, the, in Christian doctrine and morals. In fact, they had been warned, Paul says in verse 9, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company, company with fornicators. They had been written to Paul in an extra-biblical letter that's not part of the canon of Scripture telling them not to keep company with fornicators. And he reminds them in verse 9 about that letter. But what was their reaction? Obviously, they didn't take his warning seriously. But sadly, the sins that were mentioned by Paul were not new to the Corinthians and were being tolerated by them. The text says, verse 1, there is fornication among you. The word fornication, I want you to notice that word tonight. The word fornication is the Greek word pornia. It's where we get our English word pornographic or pornography. And it is a general word that entails all kinds of sexual sin. The, the word includes homosexuality, lesbianism, adultery, and even includes bestiality. But it would also include the sexual sin that is in reference here, which is incest. Again, in verse 1, Paul says, the end of verse 1, that one should have his father's wife. Now, the term father's wife indicates for us that this woman, whoever she was, was not this boy's natural mother. Either his father was divorced or his mother died, obviously. Although the nature of the relationship is, is not known, meaning whether or not the stepmother was married to the boy's father or not anymore, the Greek term in our text for have is echo, and it, root, and it, it is routine, routine, uh, routinely used in the Greek language of speaking about a marital relationship, especially including a sexual relationship. So whether or not this boy and his mother were married at the time is not known for sure. We do not know, if, is, what we do know is that this boy and his stepmother were engaging in incestuous sexual acts together. And it's clear from the Old Testament of what God thought about this relationship. Sexual relations between a man and his stepmother was in the same category as relations between a man and his natural mother. Anyone guilty of those or other sexual abominations were what? Were cut off from the people. For example, in Leviticus chapter 18, beginning in verse 7, the nakedness of thy father or the nakedness of thy mother shalt thou not uncover. She is thy mother, thou shalt not uncover her nakedness. 
The nakedness of thy father's wife shalt thou not uncover. It is thy father's nakedness. So the relationship of the boy to the natural mother, biblically, under God's law, was the same as his relationship with his stepmother. It didn't make it different because she was his stepmother. God saw it as the same relationship. And in verse 29 of Leviticus 18, For whosoever shall commit any of these abominations, even the souls that commit them shall be cut off from among the people. And in Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 30, A man shall not take his father's wife, nor discover his father's skirt. And of course the word there, cut off, is a reference to what, church? And it's a reference to capital punishment. Anybody caught in an incestuous relationship was taken out and was killed immediately. Because God's purpose and God's intent was to maintain purity within the camp of Israel. And God's intent and God's purpose is to maintain purity within the ranks of Emmanuel Baptist Church. And while he doesn't call us to take them out and, and kill them, he does call us to take them out and remove them from the church. We know that from Cicero and others that such incest, Cicero is of course a Roman emperor, and we know from him on down that, that incest was strictly forbidden under Roman law, of which Corinth would have been under Roman rule at this time. And that is what causes Paul to say again in verse 1, and here is, here is the knife, here's the dagger. Look what he says, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles. Folks, listen, that should have cut them to the heart. A church member in Corinth, Paul says, was guilty of a sin that he says even your pagan neighbors do not practice or tolerate. You're doing something, church. You are allowing something within the ranks of your church that even the heathen does not permit. Even the ungodly people don't permit that among their ranks, but you're allowing it in the church. The testimony of this church had been severely hindered. Three things I want you to understand about this particular relationship is, seems to be evident. The, word, the first is the Greek verb have indicates it's a present tense. And so it indicates that the sexual activity between this boy and his stepmother was still going on at the time of the writing of this letter. It was not a one-time thing. It was not a short-term affair. It was continuous and it was open. They may have been living together as husband or wife. We don't know. But we do know that this relationship at the time of the writing of this letter by Paul was still going on. The second thing we want to we notice is that, is that there's not a charge here of adultery. The charge is fornication. The charge is not adultery. The relationship between the son and his stepmother had probably caused her to be divorced from the father. And third, because Paul does not call out that the woman be disciplined, perhaps this woman was not even a Christian. She probably was not even a part of the church at Corinth, just the boy was a part of the church. The man, therefore, being a believer, was not only was immorally, but was unequally related to this woman. He was unequally yoked with this woman. And it would seem to me, and it should seem to all of us, that Paul's reference to the Gentiles should have given them a prod, should have given a prod to the Corinthians to take action 
against this particular sin. Again, Chris Mocker in his commentary says this, As one rotten apple in a box can spoil its entire content, so one reckless sinner can make the entire Corinthian church ineffective in its witness. Folks, let me ask you a question. How many people does it take for Emmanuel Baptist Church to, to be considered ineffective? Just one. Just one. Just one person in an open, unrepentant sin. Now, we're not talking about this, the private sins of your mind and your heart that you struggle. We're not talking about those. We're, and that's not what Paul is talking about. We're talking about the open, unrepentant sins. Makes an entire church, an entire church's witness, ineffective. And Paul is speaking to the church as a whole. And the salvation of this boy, though he was a member, is certainly up for question. Certainly up for question. That's why later on in the text, Paul calls him a so-called brother. So-called brother. In other words, he calls himself a brother, but the reality of that is severely in question. Why? Because the scriptures, church, are very clear. And let's be clear about this. The scriptures are very clear that fornicators do not inherit the kingdom of God. Right? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither pornos, which is the noun form of pornia or pornia, neither fornicators. They're included in the ranks of idolaters and adulterers and, the, and homosexuals. He talks about the effeminate and nor abusers of themselves with mankind. And that is speaking about the, 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 the active and the passive member of a homosexual relationship. Both the aggressor and the passive member of the homosexual relationship. He says, they do not enter the kingdom of heaven either. And neither does a person that is in a continual lifestyle of unrepented fornication. They do not enter the kingdom of heaven either. Not that the sin of fornication keeps anyone out of the kingdom of heaven. Not that the sin of fornication is not forgivable by the grace of God. But the persistent, unrepentant acts of fornication shows that there's no life of the Spirit within the person because there's no conviction over the sin. And that's why Paul uses the present tense there. That those who continually commit these acts show that they truly are not within the framework of the family of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13, the Apostle Paul says, Meats for belly and belly for meats, but God shall destroy both, and, both it and them. Now the body is not for what, church? Sexual immorality, fornication, but for the Lord. And the 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul says this, Flee fornication. Foige, where we get our English word fugitive, run away. From fornication. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3. But fornication and all uncleanliness or covetousness. Let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. Mortify or put to death these members which are upon the earth. What's the very first one? Pornia. Fornication, sexual sin. Folks, listen, God takes this very seriously, and so should we. 
Open, unrepented sexual sin is not something to be giggled at. It's not something to make jokes about. I don't find sexual sin within the ranks of the church any more funny than I find jokes about homosexuality funny. I don't find jokes about homosexuality funny. I don't find them funny at all. And I don't find the sin of unrepented fornication funny. And God doesn't find it funny. There must be purity in the church. And Paul says, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. He says, because you are tolerating within this church something that's not even named among unsaved people. And Paul says, put it to death. Put it to death. In Revelation chapter 21, in verse 18, but the fearful, God is giving us a list here of those people that are not going to heaven. These are a list of people that are not, this is not a list of those people that are going to barely make it. These are a list of those people that are not going to make it at all. The fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderer, the whoremonger, the sorcerer, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their place in the lake which burneth with brimstone. This is the second death. This is a very real reality folks this is a very real reality of what was going on in this church and Paul says the reported sin is this it is reported in detail it is reported with effective eyewitness testimony that this is what you are tolerating in your church You say, Pastor, how do you know that it was a wide witness? Because they weren't ashamed of it. Because in verse 2, Paul says, you're arrogant about it. You know, there's one thing to allow it to, it's one thing to be tolerant of it, but it's another thing to be proud because of it. This church was not only tolerating this sexual sin, but they were proud of the fact that they had this sexual sin in their church. Perhaps they were tolerant of their, perhaps they were proud of their tolerance or proud of their Christian love. God doesn't find, folks, this something to be proud of. And Paul says, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. You ought to be shocked, as I am, that you are allowing something within the ranks of your church by the which is not even allowed and done within the ranks of unsaved people. Paul says, it's it's unbelievable you are allowing a young man in his church to be in, in, his forna, uh, to be in a, a, a sexual relationship with his stepmother. But you're allowing it to take place. And he says, even ungodly people, Paul says, don't allow that to go on. So this, the reported sin is reported greatly. And this is something, church, that needs to be taken very seriously by Emmanuel Baptist Church. Praise God, we don't have that issue here. We don't have that issue here. We don't have the issue here, and I'm thankful for it. It's not a, it's not a matter of pride on our parts. We don't, just as it's wrong for them to be arrogant about their impurity, it would be wrong for us to be arrogant about our purity. One would be just as wrong as the other. But I am proud of the fact that we have a church here that does, in fact, take sin seriously. But this is just to emphasize for us, as we study this book, this is just to emphasize for us, once again, how seriously God does take sexual sin. 
I can't tell you how many times I've, I've, I've overheard. And again, like I'm, like I'm telling you this morning, not that I was eavesdropping, Jana. It's just that they learned to whisper in a sawmill. So you just kind of hear this stuff being said sometimes. And I've even had some Christian parents over the years say, say these things to me and in my presence. Uh, I remember one particular time I was dealing with a family whose who's, who's male relative, there were several people within the family, that had found out that, she, that he was in a sexual relationship with his girlfriend. And they were just going on and on and on about it. But you know the one thing that I heard, Denise, more than anything? The one prayer that I heard coming out of the mouth of these Christian family members, and I'm not here to say whether they are or whether they're not. That's not the point. But they claim to be. But the one prayer that I heard coming out of their mouth was, man, Pastor, I sure hope she doesn't get pregnant. What's that got to do with the sin? Whether the girl gets pregnant or not is not the issue. That's the result of the sin. That's oops, found you out time. That's not the issue. That should not be the issue in the church. The issue in the church is not I hope she don't get pregnant and because why and embarrass us. What ought to embarrass the church is when the church allows it tolerates it within its ranks so it wasn't the pregnancy that was the issue it should not have been the pregnancy that was the issue what the issue should have been was the fact that these two unmarried young people were engaging in sexual activity outside of marriage that was the issue and folks i'm thankful again that 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 i pastor a church that takes this very seriously but not every but not every church does I know, of a, I know of an independent Baptist church not far from here who allowed a couple that was living together outside of marriage to be baptized and join their church. An independent Baptist church within spitting distance of us that allowed that to take place. And so it's not that serious in every place. But God takes it seriously. God takes it seriously. And so should you. It is a reported sin. It is reported common. Thank you for listening to Divine Truth Podcast. We pray that the Word of God has been a spiritual blessing to your soul. For more information about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebcmineral.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Our Lord's Day services are 10 and 11 a.m. as well as 6.30 p.m. We also have a Wednesday service at 6.30 p.m. We here at Emmanuel Baptist Church pray that the message of God's divine truth would always go from the cross, through the church, to the world, until Christ come. God bless you.